Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Jacob. Really excited to have you on the show to share your experience. Could you share a little bit about yourself? Hi, Jeremy. Great to be here. So, yeah, my name is Jacob. I'm the founder and CEO of IOConnect. Uh, IOConnect is a B2B fintech. We operate in Indonesia. We're one of the largest API platforms down here. So we basically are on a mission to build financial APIs on the payment side, data side, and banking sites and help on the financial inclusion. We've been around for seven years. So yeah, excited to be here and share a bit more. So how did you get started as an entrepreneur? Because I know you first started out as an operator and a consultant. So did you always have an interest in being a founder or being in doing business? Yeah, good question. I mean, I uh, yeah, admittedly started out on the more boring sides. I was a banker very briefly in investment banking in Germany where I grew up and then moved to BCG, did a lot of banking and financial institution projects, which helped to really understand how financial institutions work, what the challenges are and, and so forth. And yeah, then decided to move to Southeast Asia and still on the employment side. I was one of the early employees for Lazada Indonesia. I was the managing director over here taking care of Marketplace. And then uh, finally, finally, seven years ago with IU Connect, decided to take the leap of faith, build something on my own. And uh, that really always was the plan, <laughs> as strange as it sounds, considering all the stations that happened before. But I, I think I got very early fascinated by entrepreneur stories. Back in the days, Richard Branson was a big fan of mine. I read all his books and he started out very early and he did. He was a serial entrepreneur, did so many things. The thought of having an idea and then coming up with something and then seeing it through all the way and uh, being your own boss was always something that fascinated me. So I think being where, where I am today, I would never want to go back. So pretty happy of what we're doing and where we are. Uh, amazing. You said that you were inspired by this story. How did you come across? Was it like a book or articles or headlines? What was it about it that appealed to you so much? So uh, I always had a very entrepreneurial, let's call it element inside me. Like when I was 16, I started the school newspaper. There wasn't any. So I was like, let's build something there put the team together and actually put a tiny but profitable business around it, going from door to door on micro businesses in town, asking for ad, ads and generating early revenues there. And uh, that continued towards various smaller projects. But then I also realized very early that you need a, like a proper toolkit around it. And I thought that banking and uh, particularly consulting gave me that, that toolkit to be very versatile and well-rounded. And I think especially as an entrepreneur, you're just always firefighting and problem solving. And uh, having a structured approach to, to problem solving is definitely going to help in the journey. So I think that's where I kind of took a cautious decision, learn from other companies, learn from great people around me before I then finally took the step to build something on my own. And, and last not but least, but the time during Lazada really helped. It was almost like being an entrepreneur. That's how it felt, building a business in the very early days, getting a lot of freedom, a lot of responsibility to try certain things out. So that's basically how it all came together. 
you credit your time to Lazada for being a key moment for you. And that's also coupled with the fact that you moved to Southeast Asia at the same time as well. Could you share a little bit more about what was it like to decide to join Lazada in Southeast Asia with the rocket banner? It was it a surprise being actually joined? And just walk us through that a little bit. I would say I had a really good life in BCG when the call from Lazada came, everything actually went, went quite fast. They were looking for people on the ground here. And that was almost 10 years ago. So the ecosystem was, there wasn't any ecosystem at the time. E-commerce was a very new radical concept. That This was even before the days of fintech and, and e-wallets and so on. So interesting early days. They basically told me, look, we need you here ASAP. And we're operating in seven countries. So pretty much we will call you back in one hour and you tell us which country you want to go to. When they called back one hour later and I told them I would really like to see Indonesia, they were surprised but happy at the same time. Surprised because they said no one wants to go. This is a very exotic choice. Most people want to be based in Singapore, even Thailand, Vietnam. But we were struggling finding people that actually want to go to Indonesia. And for me, it was the challenge of biggest market in Southeast Asia. But personal side, my best friend in Germany actually was a half Indonesian. So that, that helped as well on the decision-making side of things. And just the opportunity ahead, starting with a white blank paper and going after a very big vision and seeing how that would turn out was just something that really attracted me to actually do it. A lot of people were attracted by that vision and then they moved and it was like a change from in terms of geography but also a change in terms of company culture because it's a different vertical right from consulting to startup so what was it like arriving in lazada in indonesia in market any good war stories about what was it like to build at that time like you said in a very young ecosystem tons of war stories i would say obviously a crazy experience a crazy culture shock as well i mean one is just building the business. The other one is on the ground in Southeast Asia for the first time. I think I approached it with a very open mindset. So I was just like a sponge, sucking everything in, embracing all the news. On the business side, essentially, the challenge was to educate people about e-commerce, but also convert users to trust digital transactions in the first place. So I was the director for Lazada Marketplace, which meant opening up the platform for third-party sellers, going to businesses out there, convincing them to join e-commerce. And the trust level was just very low. The feedback I got at the time was more like e-commerce will never work in Southeast Asia. People like shopping, smalls, they like touching physical things, they don't trust a stranger on the internet. I've seen the journey in, in other markets. I was pretty convinced that eventually it'll happen and there would be a turning point in, in Southeast Asia as well. But perception was very different. So building the trust and the user experience and the convenience and all of this together was a, a big task at the time. Now it's second nature. It's just so normal, but it's it's just phenomenal to see how the market has come along and, and ultimately also the ecosystem in itself. When I mentioned earlier that there weren't really a lot of people that wanted to be based in, in Jakarta and in Indonesia at the time, Indonesia wasn't known for unicorns. People didn't know what a startup was. When I tried hiring people in the early days, they kind of discontinued the interview after 10 minutes after they found out that this is a six months old company. The go-to mode was still working for established big conglomerates, family companies and, and so on, and big, big brand names. And that was fun, <laughs> I would say. Very tough, very challenging. I think I worked probably definitely a very special time in my journey here. What else made it special, I think, during that time while you were there? 
Yeah, I think what was really unique was the people that you surrounded yourself with. I mean, in a way, everyone was crazy enough to jump onto similar opportunities. So the mindset of the people that you had around you was very intoxicating in a, in a positive way. There was a lot of eye energy. Everyone was extremely young, early 20s, mid-20s. And we had just had this big dream of building something. I think we were all builders at heart. And I think that's also where, where the term Lazada Mafia comes from. It's not an organized system. It's more like loose touch points and overlaps that you have. But that was such a interesting, intense, short time. You got to know a lot of people that are still around and went on to build amazing other companies. So we spent 14, 16 hours at work together, and then we hang out in the evenings together. And, and obviously, a lot of friendships and, and good bonds shaped during that time and, and still exist today. Ah, that sounds like so much fun. Obviously, you did your three years building an executive level across Indonesia. And then you went to build IU Connect, which is open finance. And this isn't something that was built like you know, one year, two years ago, and now it's really popular to have open APIs and so, so forth. But that was actually a really long time ago, actually. Uh, so how did you come up with the idea? How did that first get started? Yeah, so I stayed in Lazada from like the super early days all the way until we sold the business to Alibaba. I felt like a chapter closed and another chapter opened post-acquisition. That's basically when I met my co-founder, Shara Kapalani. We both wanted to build something. He came from a product and tech background. I came from a commercial business financial background. We're really complementary. He had been involved with building companies before and scaling them successfully. Very quickly, we realized that fintech is something that is very close to our heart. And uh, there's certainly a lot of issues, a lot of things that are broken in payments and financial transactions, in the consumer journey, among different things. And that's basically where we basically started with our first use case, which was utilities and digital product. We were actually, in fact, the first ones in Indonesia who put this on a mobile platform before you know, there was e-wallets, when smartphone penetration was still less than 30% in Indonesia. So that's how we essentially started. We came actually from a user journey, being users ourselves, having pain points ourselves, and then very quickly realized that the more exciting opportunity is actually the infrastructure layer below. We realized there's, there's, Indonesia needs a lot of consumer-facing platform and businesses, and we see this still holding true till date. What's needed is sort of like a toolbox to enable entrepreneurs to build their businesses and scale their businesses very quickly. Cloud architecture is, I think, a good similar example there. No one building a new company today would think about putting some servers into their office. Obviously, you use uh, cloud servers. We realized there needs to be something like this when it comes to embedded financial services, payments, data stack, and so on. So I think that's where the, where the big vision initiated from, but obviously we had to, to start somewhere at the time. So we started small with one use case, and only over the last couple of years, we were able then to broaden the use case, and that's ultimately then where we ended up in open finance and open banking. And uh, still even feels very early today, being honest. <laughs> what was challenging about that in the early days? Because I don't think that was very clear even back then. And even now, is I think people are still question mark. So was there a lot of skepticism around from folks at that time? And what color did that skepticism take? Yeah, so a couple of layers there. Starting a new business is always challenging. The odds are stacked against you from day one. On top of that, I think starting an infrastructure business is to a certain extent also even more challenging in the early days because infrastructure takes time, it takes relationships, it takes integrations, it takes a lot of investing upfront without immediate results coming back to you. So the product cycles tend to be much longer. 
being in a B2B space also doesn't really allow you to have a half-baked solution when you deal with people money, people data, you know, when you have the top three banks and so on. So you need to have a certain degree of professionalism around it, but that takes time. And then trying to juggle all of this, having a small team, still being in the market for fundraising, trying to get early results was an extremely challenging time. And as time moves on, I think it's getting easier. You're being known for something, you're having the relationships and so on. So that's there. I think the other component is, uh, as you mentioned, there was a lot of skepticism because when you're trying to improve something, you basically ultimately have to tell people that something is not working in the first place or that something is broken. And that's not a very comfortable message to banks or ecosystem. Things are not really working or good and so on. So in hindsight, we've come a long way and our early clients realized what we meant by that. But I think that was one of the early challenges as well. So how do you go about messaging that in a nicer way slash more diplomatic way? I think luckily the ecosystem has changed. In fact, I think there's a lot of awareness, especially when it comes to open banking. Two or three years ago, the term open banking wasn't known in the ecosystem. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. It's part of white papers, reports, studies. It's being discussed at conferences. That is great to see how, how far we've come on, on this side. But I think what we need now is actually real solutions that make an impact going all the way to actually customers having easier financial access through open banking, getting products cheaper, more seamlessly. And I think there's still a long way to go. That's where we are early. So we're somewhere in between. There's awareness, there's positivity around it, but there's still a long way to go as well. And you became a founder. Was there any differences between being an operator and being a founder? Things that you had to learn to be different or skills you had to change or... Absolutely. If you're an operator, you're sort of like restricted to certain areas. So don't look left, don't look right, just focus on one KPI and and do this. And that, that's great. Having that focus, becoming a founder, that vision extends. It's a more 360 approach to things where like, I mean, obviously fundraising, uh, talking to investors is a big part, but building a brand is another component convincing people internally and externally what the mission is, what the opportunity at hand is, why what you're building makes sense is there. So I think the communication side of things is very important compared to operating. Company culture reflects your values and having everyone aligned on a vision and just leadership in general are some of the elements I think that even till date, I'm still learning. You never get perfect, can get better. And as the company grew in size, what are the things that you have learned about how you have to change in your style as a leader or in terms of what you practice? Yeah, so we are now almost 300 people in IO Connect, And that's an interesting stage because it's by no means small. It's not like in the early days when you're sitting with your five first employees around the table, founding team. It's still a challenging stage nevertheless. When you go from five to 20 people, that's a certain stage. And when you go from 20 to 50 people, once you cross 250 people, you reach another stage where you realize you don't know anyone in the company anymore directly, even though we have town halls and various channels. Direct communication to the rest of the team is not really there anymore. Like, how do you overcome the communication side of things? On top of that, we are also a remote-first business. So we have people working out of eight countries, different languages, cultures, backgrounds, and so, and so on. So we have a lot of people actually building technology for Indonesia that are not based in Indonesia. So we need to actually theoretically explain the concept of what we practically want to do. 
Is that lonely? You know less and less about people, even though you know more and more people in the company. I'm wondering how you feel about that. No, I think lonely is not the right word. Absolutely not. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that we have a strong founding team. So the, the same people, Adibora and Shrek Kipalani, that I, we started the business with, they're still there today. That's a great core element. I'm not a solo founder. I think that's another level of challenge. We had a great team from the beginning. And I think on top of that, we're fortunate enough to have a really strong leadership team around us. We make sure that we get to know each other on a personal level as well. We spend enough time outside of the office as well. We fly people in if they're not in Jakarta. There's a lot of support there. It's the opposite of lonely. I feel there's a lot of support coming from different directions, also from the ecosystem as a whole. I think Southeast Asia has a very inclusive ecosystem for entrepreneurs. Everyone is in the same journey. Support is passed on to a new generation of founders. Fortunately, it's not lonely at all. And I hope it stays that way. And what are some myths and misconceptions about Indonesia and fintech slash banking system? Yeah, I'm a, overall, I feel regulatory side is very supportive. I think they're putting in, in place a lot of good frameworks that help companies like us actually navigating the space. On the demand side, there is a lot of willingness to learn about the solution that we provide and how that can help businesses to monetize better or drive customer retention or provide more value to their customers. I'm more excited than ever about actually the way Indonesia is going and especially fintech in Indonesia is going. Things work differently here than in developed countries, but I think there is a good opportunity ahead here. Open banking industry and fintechs are highly dependent on regulator action because if without regulator incentives or action, then every bank just continues being a walled garden. So is it fair to say that I think regulator desire to push the maturity of the ecosystem is one of the biggest uh, macro tailwinds, you think, for the ecosystem to grow, obviously in Indonesia, but also across Southeast Asia? Or do you think there are other factors that drive open banking in Southeast Asia? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely prefer if there's a good regulatory body in place that actually can drive an agenda. Because at the end of the day, we need to know what that agenda is. It helps put a framework in place that basically puts certain rules in place of what you can do and what you cannot do. But then there's always guys needed that basically build the technology, the stack, and operate with those guidelines. So the alternative to that is you have to push the boundaries and you have to basically go into new territory. And more often than not, that is a gray area of what you can do and cannot do. And um, I think what happened in Indonesia in the last 12, 18 months has really helped pass the way on getting clarity and even comfort. Like that's where we see banks now taking more comfort in collaborating with API platforms and opening themselves up because they understand that they're acting as per the regulatory framework and they're in the green essentially. They're the last ones that want to try certain things out that are not clear there. Having said that, there will always be areas that are where the regulatory side plays catch up and that's normal. I think we are at a stage now where we understand the roadmap very well for the next coming months and years ahead. We're actually even getting to a stage where, to a certain extent, be involved in the discussions or being consulted on some of the ideas, like have a voice in the policy making or decision making process as well. That's, I think, extremely exciting. So, if you're able to shape the future of the country and those things affect hundreds of millions of people for the next decades to come. You're understanding kind of like the impact, just a small player in, the, in that overall ecosystem, but nevertheless, it's, it's super exciting. 
What advice do you have for founders who are building in the gray? I think communication is the key. Like it's okay to push boundaries. It's okay to, to do things that are not written out in detail somewhere else. But I think you need to be very transparent about what you're doing, why you're doing, and let the right people know about it. So discussion is the basis for any everything, really. That's number one. I think number two is it's also a little bit your personal risk appetite to a certain extent. So some are just a bit more comfort pushing. There is no general advice. It's like different approaches probably also sometimes lead to the same outcome. But having a sort of like a feeling for the market helps of like where are sort of like the lines. The lines are sometimes a bit blurry, but understanding how the regulatory side thinks, what their KPIs are, what their big mandate is definitely helps to then also understand how they might think about certain things. On that note, could you share with us about a time that you personally have been brave? I think it's coming back to your earlier point, just taking the decision and the leap of faith to come to Indonesia in the first place, taking any job offer in a country that you've never been before. Indonesia is, is home right now. I've been here for 10 years. My wife is Indonesian. We have uh, two kids. I'm probably becoming Indonesian from the inside, <laughs> I'm always saying. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a fascinating place to be. I love the people. I love the culture. I, I love you know where it's heading and all those different little data points and being part of that journey compared to like Germany, where I'm from and what I'm used to. Like I haven't seen any of this rapid change. It's not for everyone. You need to be up for it. But uh, if you embrace it, then it's it's a very rewarding journey overall. Leap of faith. That's a big phrase here. Could you share more about the emotional aspects about why it was a leap of faith? Just really boils down to sort of like, yeah, a bit of a gut feeling, an emotional driver. I always love traveling. I spend a lot of my time outside of Germany. I lived in the US. I lived in the Caribbean. I lived in Eastern and Southern Europe. I spent time in China before that. So I was just, yeah, just always very open-minded. When I did the decision, I by no means thought that I would spend the rest of my professional career in Indonesia. I mean, you don't know to that extent when you make the decision. You're like, let's give it a chance. Let's try out. It feels good. Something new, something exciting. Chance to prove yourself. So that was sort of like the driving factors at the time. And that was good enough. Also having the comfort of like always being able to go back to what you're used to and what you know. There's also an interesting concept. If you ask people on their deathbed about their biggest regrets in life, it's always like, ah, I wish I would have tried this. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have gone off of my comfort zone. So that regret of not doing anything, always a big driver for my decision making as well, unconsciously. And maybe that's where the entrepreneurial passion comes from, because building a business is, yeah, I do see a repeating pattern there in, in some of my decision making, both on the personal side and on the business side. Yeah, that's amazing. And you mentioned that you now have two young children. If Would you think they'll ever become founders? What advice would you give them on their career? Or what would you say? I would probably love that. My parents always gave me a lot of freedom and they trusted me in my decision making. And that's, I think, one of the most rewarding feelings of like growing up. That's definitely something I want to pass on to my children. So I'm always there to support or be of advice if asked, but it's their journey at the end of the day. I've noticed that becoming a dad has definitely changed my outlook on life as well. I'm curious, has it changed your outlook on life as well and how so? I think definitely priorities have changed. I talked to a lot of partners in consulting and investment banking companies and one of their biggest regrets is that they weren't there when their kids were growing up and they're not getting that time back. How to prioritize, how to organize, how to plan, where you're getting better over time. I mean, at the end of the day, as 
blunt as it sounds, kids having family is just another project as well. Don't get me wrong. I mean it for the right reason. It's like you need to become very honest with yourself about managing your time and priorities and so on. And that means you're actually more sensible with your time. Now I'm going to ask, do you have like a to-do list? Do you have a Gantt chart or like those kind of planners for our family as well? So weekends are, are sort of like really family time, I think. Like it doesn't always work out 100%, but times are very supporting. Being an entrepreneur gives you the freedom to actually build the company and the culture around it. So it's not just me who values those kind of things. I see a lot of our leadership team, our employees that have similar values, very important as well. Spread priorities that are important to us, to the rest of the organization as well. Amazing. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by summarizing the three big teams from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing your war stories, moving to Lazada from your time as an investment banker and management consultant, and at the same time, moving geography from Europe to Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So it's just amazing to hear what you learned on the ground and how you got yourself used to the culture, but also kind of like learn rapidly. And it built up to the second thing, which is how you came up with the idea for IO Connect and what you learned as a founder, but also as a scaling CEO. So that was a really interesting set of learnings about what it means to be knowing less people with 300 people, but also how you manage to handle that with, across the team. And lastly, I really enjoyed, I think, this segment around like what you call the personal leap of faith. So obviously you meant that in a professional side, there's a moving geography and moving cultures, but also I think you mean that in the context of your personal life, in terms of family, some of the learnings that you have had as a new dad. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.